Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Rama Baryankabo, the global head of the Center for Carbon Transition at JP Morgan. I was excited for this one because JP Morgan, of course, is a massive financial institution. They're also the largest funder of fossil fuels. Now you can talk about whether, because they're the biggest bank, it's no surprise that they're also the biggest funder of fossil fuels, it's just math, yet they get a bunch of heat from various parts of the climate community that want them to do more, to clean up their own act, and to put pressure on the rest of the global economy to do the same. Now, I was excited that Rama agreed to come on the show because I wanted to know more about this Center for Carbon Transition, when it got set up, why it got set up, what its mandate is, and also just how J.P. Morgan is thinking about the clean energy transition. And Rama does not disappoint. We cover a lot in this episode, including his own journey, growing up running big portions of the investment bank and now working in this carbon transition role. That's interesting. And we also talk about how J.P. Morgan is thinking about this transition, why they decided that now is the time to act, what kind of actions they're doing, what they're doing with their own footprint, what they're doing with their clients, what they're seeing from their clients. At any rate, I learned a lot from this one. I still do have questions, but I feel a lot more informed than I did before he came on the show. And I think you will as well. Rama, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And I must say, you are brave to come on the, the show from a big bank, not necessarily because you're not doing great work, but just because a big bank isn't probably the, the first guest that people would expect coming on a, a climate show. So I'm, I'm so 
grateful and appreciative that you're making the time and that you're willing to come on and, and share your perspective. Oh, great. Look, thanks for having me. Well, maybe for starters, just talk a bit about the Center for Carbon Transition and what it does and, and maybe a little bit of color on how it came about as well. Sure. Yeah. So the group itself, the Center for Carbon Transition or CCT for short, I'll stick to CCT because I keep jumbling the words otherwise. That's good. No, that, that'll make it much easier for me too. CCT for the, for <laughs> the rest right. of the discussion. We love acronyms at banks, by the way. So the other group, I actually run another group, which is called Corporate Finance Advisory or CFA for short. Anyway, the CCT itself is only about 18 months or so old. And it was the culmination in some ways of a lot of work the firm was doing kind of in 2019, 2020 about figuring out our own strategy when it came to ESG broadly, sustainability or carbon transition, however you want to view it. And we felt the need, we had a bunch of, we continue to have a number of experts in other parts of the bank, right? In our corporate sustainability group, in our risk management group, in you know other parts of the bank who are subject matter experts when it comes to these issues. But we felt we needed a group that was within a line of business where we could house a lot of the the relevant content, market intelligence, right? All the other things that we normally provide to our clients, house it within the line of business, within the investment bank in my case, and to make it part of the DNA of our sales force. So that when our sales force, whether it's investment bankers or commercial bankers or marketers of products, et cetera, when they go talk to their clients, you know, they have full access to all the relevant content on this topic. So that was kind of you know, the thought process we, in 2020, made a bunch of commitments, which we think are pretty material for JP Morgan. One was to Paris align our financing book. The second was to either finance or facilitate $2.5 trillion of you know, green or sustainable projects or companies over the next decade. We, again, wanted to house these commitments and the accountability for these commitments within the business, as opposed to in a corporate function where it might seem like you know it's somebody else's problem. So we wanted to, in many ways, make it kind of, you know, the problem of the people who are, you know, accountable to go sell the products of the firm to our clients, right? So those were kind of a couple of important considerations, if you will, that we decided to create the CCG. And the mandate is very much a function of the catalyst, right? So our mandate is twofold. One is we, you know, implement the existing commitments we've already made, think about how we would implement it. And then to constantly think about what other commitments would actually make sense for a firm to to put out there, right? What's reasonable, what's important, what's ambitious. So that's one part of it. I think of that as doing the housework. And then there is the client engagement piece, because at the end of the day, right, if you look at our credentials on a carbon footprint perspective, a very tiny fraction of it is kind of, you know, direct carbon footprint of JP Morgan Chase, right? That's a pretty minuscule piece. It's really the attributed carbon footprint of the clients that we engage with, right? So it's, you know, our scope three, if you will. And we want to engage with our clients. So the only way we can achieve our targets, right, and fulfill our commitments is if our clients make progress on their own journey. So that's kind of, you know, the dual mandate we have, you know, do the work for the house and then engage with clients, help them with whatever financial services we can provide to help them transition their business to a more sustainable place or a lower carbon footprint place. 
and in turn help us achieve our own commitments. Rama, maybe talk a bit about your personal journey. And I mean, one one question I'll just ask up front, is this the first time that you've ever had carbon or decarbonization as part of your professional mandate? And, and if so, how did that come about? Where did that come from? Was it just out of the blue or is it something that you were, you were thinking about for a while? Sure, yeah, look, personal journey, you know, I am like I guess most Indians of my generation, engineer by training, came to this country for grad school, have graduate degrees in engineering and statistics. And candidly, I thought, without really much thought to it, that, you know, combination of engineering statistics, I'll, you know, end up having a career in operations research in some form of a manufacturing company. But my thesis advisor at NYU, who, you know, pointed out that, well, you're in New York, it's the, you know, financial capital of the world, you may want to consider going and talking to some banks. Banks, you know, were hiring at that point, this is early 2000s, we're hiring a lot of people with a bit more technical background. I said, you may want to consider that. And so I interviewed, got a job at JP Morgan and did a couple years of internal risk management and then joined this group, the so-called CFA group, the Corporate Finance Advisory Group. It was called something else at, at inception, but that group was formed in 2005 and I was a junior guy at that time. Joined the group, stayed with the group, started running the group in 2017 on a global basis. And that is a very typical banking group. Work with clients, solve their problems, right? On broad corporate finance, structured finance type type issues. So that that's like big growth financings, that's leverage buyouts, that's M&A. Uh, am I in the right general ballpark in terms of the... No, those are exactly, right? So those are kind of, you know, the products we sell, right? M&A, capital raising, risk management, et cetera. So trying to work with clients on those types of issues, right? And I would say it was maybe 2000. 17, 18 timeframe when we started getting questions from our clients and we started observing this trend in the capital markets that a lot of flows were being categorized, if you will, as flows into ESG-oriented investments or ESG-oriented assets, right? And our clients were rightly so curious about what that meant for their own access to capital or cost of capital or valuation. Now, these, you know, if you asked me in 2017 and 18, I would have said, oh, these are just corporate finance questions. You look at capital flows and think about implications on different economic activities and companies with different business models. So we started looking at the issue from that perspective, work with a bunch of clients. So I guess my entree into carbon is through the broader lens of ESG. And so I had some experience working with clients on those topics. And as the firm JP Morgan was designing this whole strategy of how do we kind of improve our own footprint, uh, how do we think about helping clients on this kind of decarbonization journey, it seemed natural that, you know, I would be asked to end up doing that given my, you know, diversity of backgrounds, working with a bunch of clients on a global scale on a variety of issues, having some understanding of ESG, having a pretty good understanding of JP Morgan itself, having been there for 20 years. So felt like a pretty natural fit. But Again, it may not seem like a more you know a very substantial experience on the topic itself, but I have you know reasonable experience on a lot of peripheral issues. I would say, which are relevant. And I'd love to dig into some of those, but maybe before I do, just to level set, it would be good to just see how you and how the firm is thinking about the macro problem of climate change. So it seems, and I mean the caveat for me, and you probably know. My story as a member of the MCJ community is is that I'm only a few years into learning about this stuff and definitely still 
wet behind the ears, if you will, but there's overwhelming scientific evidence and, and consensus you know, that the climate is changing, that a large part of it is caused by human activities, and that essentially our entire global economy is built without factoring in the externalities of, you know, of the pollution that we're pumping into the atmosphere, and that we don't have a lot of time, right? That there's, you know, kind of this shot clock and that no matter what we do, things are going to continue to get worse over the next, you know, years and, and decades to come. But in the longer term, like we still have an opportunity to ultimately lead on a path back to, you know, to harmony and, and to thriving of life on this planet. So I'll stop there. And I'm curious, you know, whether with your personal hat on or with your JP Morgan hat on, you know, do you agree with that existential risk? Are you aligned in terms of the the timelines and and the magnitude like how how worried are you you know with your rama hat on and how worried are you as a firm i would say that everything you said was just factual right i don't think of that as necessarily subjective right and that's by the way as a as an individual and as a firm right so clearly it's an urgent issue clearly it's an important issue right and the way we think about it is you know we as a firm have a role to play we have a, as an industry have a role to play right Unlike maybe other big changes, right, in, in the world, historical changes, you know, different revolutions, right, economic revolutions, this one especially seems highly capital intensive. Right? The, you know, again, it depends on whose estimate you want to look at, but it's pretty clear that the world will need a lot of capital to actually end up avoiding some of the, you know, catastrophes that you were, you were pointing to, right, which puts, I think, an incremental responsibility on the financial sector, right? Because, you know, clearly we are, as a firm, for example, we are a provider of capital. The largest funder of fossil fuel projects, correct? By some definition, yes. We are also the largest financer of many other sectors because we have a very big balance sheet, right? If you do the math, we, I think, based on public numbers, about 4% of our wholesale lending is to oil and gas. But there are lots of other economic sectors where that number is over 10%. But factually true, if you simply compare... Absolute numbers, we are the largest, right? Yeah, so it might be 4% of your total, but it's larger than anyone else. Correct. As is our balance sheet, which is larger than anyone else's, right? So science matters, math also matters, right? <laughs> so the, the role we have, right, as I was saying, is, you know, we can direct capital to the right places, right? Our own capital, obviously. But also we have a pretty good map of, you know, what other capital providers' risk preferences are and the reward anticipations are, right? So I think our role is kind of to figure out the best mapping, if you will, between the capital seekers, right, who are trying to decarbonize the world, and the capital providers, right? Again, some of it will come from us. Clearly not all of it can come from us, but we can kind of create the map and then, you know, do the best possible matching of those, right? So those are the kinds of things that I spend a lot of my time thinking about, and as a firm, we spend a lot of time thinking about. I definitely want to dig in on those topics, but since we just got some context on the macro, now maybe we can get some context on CCT. So what is the mandate of the group? How big is the group? What kind of skill sets do you have on the team? And what types of services are you providing and to whom? The group is growing fast. Call it about 15 bankers globally at this moment in time. It was like three, about 12 months back. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure we will continue to grow, right? The way we think about it, you know, people and balance sheet are kind of our two most valuable assets and we are deploying both, right? So we have, again, I think of this as a 
pretty multidisciplinary problem that we are tackling. So we need experts from the capital market side, right? People who understand how the markets work and how to, again, act as financial intermediaries in the most efficient way. We need people who understand climate science, right? We need people who understand the, you know, shareholder engagement and stakeholder engagement aspects of this, right? So we are kind of trying to build a pretty multidisciplinary team. Again, not all of them will be housed within the CCT umbrella, right? We have folks who are, you know, we have climate scientists in our asset management practice, and we have folks who come from an environmental advocacy practice within our corporate sustainability group, et cetera, right? So we are trying to bring into the firm all kinds of relevant expertise that will be you know, needed to solve the problem. And what is the mandate of the group? Part of it is to make sure that we can implement the commitments that we have put out right, as a firm. Right? So for example, our Paris commitment, I can talk more about that. Right? We're you know, in the process of implementing it. And the second is to engage with clients. Right? To, I think of our clients as largely falling in two camps, right? One is those clients, many of our legacy clients, whose business model has a liability, embedded liability, right? An ESG liability, a climate liability, however you want to think about it, right? And most of them recognize that they have the liability. Most of them recognize the need to transition away from the liability, right? Because that makes sense for them. And so for that group of clients, we want to engage with them and provide, again, you know, the financial toolkit we have for their benefit to help them transition. That's one group of clients that we engage with. The second group of clients are, you know, maybe newer companies, largely speaking, not all of them, who have a business model that's actually part of the solution where, you know, climate is not a liability, but it's an asset, right? And so we want to engage with them. One, we want to provide banking services to them, right? We want to be their bank of choice. Two, we also think that, you know, these solutions that these folks are providing can be, or developing can be pretty useful to those legacy clients who are in need for these solutions. Again, playing the role of matchmaker, right? Which again, we do as a normal course of business. So those are the types of activities that the group's mandated to do. And that's what we are doing, I would say, on a daily basis. I mean, is the group a line of business? Does it have revenue and profitability targets, or is it more of a cost center that is serving the needs of the lines of business? Yeah, so we don't have a, a P&L for the group. I'm personally not a big fan of the term cost center. I mean, look, everything, you know, it's, it's, it's how, you, how you bill your client, right? We provide a lot of services to your client. Certain things we bill explicitly, certain things we don't. At the end of the day, everyone who works at the firm is has a cost associated with them, and provides a value to our client, right? So if from a very, again, tactical perspective, yeah, we don't book revenue directly, but we are hoping that by providing solutions, relevant solutions to our clients who are faced with these problems, they will hopefully give JP Morgan some business in implementing those solutions, right? So it is at the end of the day, part of uh, the investment bank and is part of the, one of the many tools we want to deploy to create value for our clients, which will hopefully then create value for ourselves. Got it. So I think if I'm hearing right, these companies that need services, they are concerned about the risk or liabilities and where the world is going and whether they will be equipped to compete in the next era, but they don't necessarily have the expertise in this area to 
properly assess their options and the path forward. And so by helping them in an advisory capacity, the bet that JP Morgan is making is that it will help show your value so that you can be a better partner across the portfolio of other services that the bank provides. Yeah, it's a fair summary. Why now? I mean, what is it that made, because people have been talking about climate since, I mean, for decades, right? I mean, Exxon knew and, and scientists knew and lots of people knew. And I mean, yeah, the symptoms are getting more visible and obvious relative to how they were, but relative to how they're going to be, you know, in a decade or two decades, they're peanuts. So what is the compelling reason now or the forcing function, if you will, to establish this group and formalize the efforts? Look, it's a good question. Again, the issue of climate or, you know, the broader environmental issues or social issues or governance issues, those are clearly not new to JP Morgan, right? We have had many functions, we, you know, which have focused on the issue. What is new is to start thinking of it as so core to the business that we want to create, again, a group within the line of business and try to, again, make this part of our DNA, right? Regardless of what other banking product I'm selling, to have this topic embedded as part of that, you know, sales effort, that's new thinking for sure in the last couple of years. What's led to it, again, I would say it's a confluence of factors, right? You know, we are participants in the financial market. So to us, a lot of the signals come from the financial markets, right? As I was alluding to at the beginning, right? We have been seeing now, at least for the last handful of years, a lot of capital flows in the markets are being defined by these, these factors, right? Investors are increasingly thinking about it as a relevant factor, if not a primary factor in their investment decisions. Our clients, the issuing clients, on the other hand, are increasingly thinking of this as part of business strategy. It used to be that maybe a few years back, people thought of a sustainability strategy as to the side or independent of business strategy. Now, increasingly, those things are merging, right? And so it just felt very natural for us that for our own business, we need to start merging those two things, right? What's our kind of, you know, sustainability strategy and what's our business strategy? I think they are, they seem to have merged. You talk about the Paris commitments and the commitments that JP Morgan's made as a firm. And then you talk about client engagements and helping them navigate their own plans to reach their commitments. But you mentioned earlier in the discussion that you came at this through ESG first. Can you talk a bit about how ESG fits relative to climate change, net zero, decarbonization? Is it separate and distinct? Are they intertwined? Like how how do they interrelate, if at all? And and how did you find your way from ESG into CCT? I just want to understand how that threading interrelates. Look, it's a good question. And, you know, candidly, my answer to that is different depending on the day of the week. There are days when I feel like this acronym of ESG is much like an acronym that was popular maybe a few years back called BRICS, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and somehow became a little bit of a buzzword in emerging market investing. The reality, if you kind of paid attention, was each of these countries and economies is quite different. Yes, there are some commonalities, but they're quite different. And I don't think anybody with you know serious capital to deploy was thinking of these things as just one thing, right? If you're serious, you went and did your work on any of those individual countries or economies. I think ESG, to some extent, I feel suffers from that same issue, 
right? I think each of these factors are quite important by themselves. Maybe if you roll the clock back, you know, a decade or so, none of them were rising to the level of importance that they deserved. And hence, someone thought that maybe if we club them all together, collectively, maybe it'll get the attention it, it deserves. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But I do feel like we are at a point where maybe the acronym has served its purpose. You know, when again, when we go talk to whether issuing clients or investing clients, folks who are very serious are thinking of it as quite distinct, right? And thinking about if I'm on the, the investor side, if I go talk to investors who have spent enough time and resources thinking about it, they're not relying on ESG as a factor. They're relying on, I have done the work, to me, climate matters, and here's how I think about climate as a factor, right? impacting different business models, et cetera, right? So I am increasingly, again, by no means suggesting that social issues are not important. In fact, quite the opposite. They're quite important, and we are doing it a disservice by clubbing all of these together. And, you know, a lot of these assessment providers, which give like, you know, hey, here's my assessment on a, an organization's ESG credentials. I can see that increasingly it's becoming more and more difficult. How do you balance these various issues? And is it is it okay to be average on each of these factors? Or is it better to be really good on one, but not, not great on the other? Is it about, like, how do you think about these, these issues when they are so distinct? I think it's, it's a problem with the acronym, I worry. So again, pretty long-winded way of saying, I think the more I think about it, the more I feel like, you know, we need to major, I, for me and for our group, we are majoring in kind of the E part of ESG, if you will. And even within the E, to be very frank, we're majoring on the climate part of it. Obviously, there are other issues. Doesn't mean those other issues are not important. It's just that we need to kind of, you know, go deep on each as opposed to just kind of stay superficial with just a, a broad umbrella ESG. And this is more of a philosophical question, but one issue I have with ESG is it's almost like, oh, there's, there's this set of funds over here and that's like capital with a conscience, let's say, but it's kind of off to the side and it's a small percentage of the total capital and the rest of the capital can just chase the almighty dollar and do, and do whatever it wants. I mean, do you share that worry and, and how do you think about our overall financial system and the system of, of capitalism and how conscience does or, or should fit into it? I worry about that. But I also am pretty optimistic that it's a transient phase, right? Because it's very, in my mind, maybe this is too simplistic, but these are not unrelated issues, right? You know, you can't, if you, if there is a business that is creating negative externalities, right? Which again, we're not pricing explicitly today, but if you can see that, you have to realize that soon enough, there will be a price on that. And that'll degrade the business model and that'll, impact your investment if you're thinking of investing in the business model. So it's not a question, to me, it's just a question of time horizons. If you're thinking of, oh, maybe I can kind of make a quick buck in the next three months before others realize there is a problem, maybe, right? But there are lots of other issues with short-termism in the financial markets, right? And this is not the only area. But if you have, like we do, uh, you know, a long enough time horizon, then it's almost impossible to not think of you know these things as really fundamental drivers of asset valuations 
and to take that viewpoint. Okay, so bear with me here, but I have a, a question in my head. I'm gonna try to articulate it clearly. Basically, you're a service provider and you have clients. And what you're telling me is that those clients don't necessarily need to operate with a conscience because the markets will take care of it because the regulation will inevitably come. If that's true, and you care about the severity of the problem, then presumably you would want them to regulate sooner and bolder, but that isn't necessarily what your clients want. So how do you reconcile that tension if you're trying to do the right thing, but you're a service provider? I would maybe rephrase it slightly. Look, the corrective mechanisms can be regulation, clearly, right? And different parts of the world seem to kind of, you know, put different weight on it. Another correcting mechanism is just the markets, right? Which maybe I put a little more weight on, right? That again, if you're building a business, if you're investing in a business, whatever the case may be, for the long term, from my perspective, you say, well, these are things I need to put a price on, right? I mean, eventually the market will put a price on whether or not there is regulation. We don't need to necessarily, you know, regulation doesn't put a price on credit quality, right? the market puts a price on credit quality. And me as a lender, I can't say that, oh, everybody who knocks on my door asking for credit is the same. I do my analysis. I think about what the you know my view on credit is, and then I provide a differentiated product set and a differentiated pricing, right? So to me, and I've heard the phrase somebody, you know, say that, you know, carbon is the new calorie, which yes, consumers seem to care about it and will increasingly care about it. But to me, the even more important realization was carbon is a new credit, right? It's a financial asset that will get priced in by the market, right? The financial markets are already showing signs of it. Not perfect, but to me, that is an important trend that that will be the corrective mechanism, even in the absence of regulation. I'm not saying there should be no regulation. I'm saying the markets can play a pretty substantial role as well. Well, I am a terrible economist, so that's the caveat here. But one point I'm having trouble understanding is if essentially there's no price on the externalities and the atmosphere is a trash dump for this pollution and you can dump as much of it as you want and it's as if it doesn't exist, but it does have these you know, second and third order effects that you don't necessarily care about in your own self-interest, because when you put it up there, that'll be for some future generation to worry about it or some developing country or not me in my, you know, in my penthouse in, in Manhattan, right? And so what incentive does the market have to price it in if it doesn't have a price? Like, why will it be priced in without regulation? The anticipation of regulation, right? The anticipation of consumer preferences changing, right? I could keep building a product, right, which has negative externalities, but I take the risk that either I'll be regulated away or consumer preferences will change such that my product isn't attractive anymore, right? So those are pretty strong incentives or disincentives as you want to think about. And again, asset valuations, asset prices today are just a function of, you know, what the future possibilities are, and you kind of discount that back today, right? So again, our own Paris commitment, right? And others have, you know, similar commitments. That is a way, that is a market mechanism of doing exactly that, right? When, when we say that we have a Paris commitment, we are measuring the carbon footprint of our clients, and then we have put a 2030 target on where that 
carbon footprint of the JP Morgan client portfolio needs to be, that's a way of the market, right? Think of JP Morgan as a market participant putting a price on carbon, right? Implicitly, right? Because if I have to take my portfolio level carbon footprint and reduce it over time, then I am going to price my services with a view to the carbon footprint of the counterparty or the client, right? That's just a market mechanism. And that mechanism will percolate, right? Other banks have come up with you know, similar ambition, right? Some have started publishing methodologies. We have started implementing these methodologies a few months back, right? So for us today, it's already part of the decision-making. I think others are following suite from what I can tell. Other capital providers, right? Whether these are, you know, whoever they are, I mean, every one of them is on this journey in some way to start baking in a price of these external entities, right? It just happened. And so I'm pretty optimistic. Again, I'm by no means advocating that zero need for regulation, the market will figure this all out by itself. I'm not. All I'm saying is the market can be a pretty powerful force and a pretty powerful incentive mechanism. So one thing that's confusing to me, and this isn't really a JP Morgan specific question, but you talked about consumer preference playing a role and you would think it would, but yet there's way more collective agreement on concern about climate change in the populace than is represented in the behavior of our elected officials. And that disconnect is puzzling to me. Why do you think that is? I would actually try to make a different point than maybe what you're making, which I think is equally alarming is, yes, there is a lot of angst about the issue in in the popular opinion that you hear, right? But it hasn't necessarily translated into consumer behavior changing fast enough, right? You know, we're all, I'm sure, doing to some extent things differently today than maybe we were doing last decade or whenever, right? Trying to be a bit more conscious of our own footprint. But I would contend not enough, right? Yeah, maybe that comes down to theory of change. I just don't buy that it's consumers that are going to get us out of a systems problem like this. I think it's the key levers in the system that are going to get us out of this. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? I definitely don't disagree with the statement, but I do think consumer behavior has a role to play, right? I mean, we as consumers do need to kind of, you know, modulate our behavior a little bit. By no means is that going to be enough, right? And again, the mechanism, you look at what's happened, especially in Europe, but, you know, across the globe, right? As the system broadly has put pressure on suppliers, for example, of commodities, let's say fossil fuels, right? And that has led to at least some some change, maybe not enough change, right? But some change. And yet the demand side of this hasn't really changed fast enough. So the supply side has actually changed faster than the demand side, right? And what lead that leads to is price increases and price dislocations, right? Again, you could sit and say, oh my God, that's terrible. Or you can say, okay, that is the corrective mechanism. Once you start feeling the pinch more in your pocketbooks, maybe that can be the catalyst to change the demand. And we will kind of, you know, reach a new equilibrium where both supply and demand sides have kind of changed. I'm positing that something like that could happen. I'm not saying that that will happen. Yeah, I love the saying that that's slowly and then all at once. I feel like a lot of times that's how this type of change plays out. And given where you sit, you have a closer view to this than, than arguably anybody. Because on the one hand, you know, I think these huge 
huge moneymakers, these big empires that powered the industrial revolution and everything, like they're going to kind of hang on to their nest egg as long as they can. And they're playing an important role. But directionally, at some point, like things change slowly and then all at once. And I'm very confident that when they change, they're going to change fast. But I guess my question for you is what will it take to flip and how far away are we from that flip occurring? And, And what are the key blockers that are preventing us from getting there sooner? Again, maybe I'm being irrationally optimistic, but I think the change has already started. And again, look, we spend, I spend all my day obviously talking to our clients and we are, JP Morgan Chase obviously has not just the visibility into corporate behavior, but also retail behavior as a you know large retail bank. I see behavior change again across the board and I, I, I feel pretty optimistic. Again, what people do, worry about and complain about is the pace and is the pace fast enough to what might be really required you could definitely say maybe it's not but i see an acceleration right every day i talk to a client i mean i'm i'm quite amazed how much time our clients are spending thinking about this thinking about how to retool their own business strategy to make sure that they are again you could say it's a value space decision Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it's a valuation-based decision. They understand or they fear that if they do not pivot fast enough, there will be an impact on valuation, right? So again, I, I see in my job every day, I see cause for optimism. And by the way, it's not just in the energy complex, it's in our transportation infrastructure, it's in our food and ag infrastructure, it's across the board. So I'm not going to ask this next question with a JP Morgan hat on. I'm asking you a personal question. As a citizen of the world, do you hope that we get off of fossil fuel as soon as possible? What does get off mean, right? Again, even as definitely answer. Stop taking it up and and burning it. I mean that, yeah. No, I I actually, you know, I don't believe that any any scenario I have seen, even if you look at the IENZs, the net zero scenario, assumes fossil fuel goes to zero anytime soon, right? Fossil fuels have- But is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? That's what I'm asking. Are you glad about that? If there was an alternative available, right, to satisfy the energy needs of the world, sure, I would pick the alternative, which was, let's assume, obviously, no carbon or low carbon. For sure, I would pick that, right? But I'm also realistic that it's not clear. We look in a world where the population continues to grow, right? In a world where- living standards continue to improve, which I hope most of us will agree is a good thing, right? How do you, right? So energy needs will grow, right? So you are hoping that it's the efficiency of that energy use that improves and the intensity of the energy use that improves, right? Those are our levers and we should push as hard as we can. And if we can kind of find alternate sources of fuel that are reliable and don't put an undue burden on parts of the world who have kind of, you know, maybe, missed a lot of the development that was fueled by fossil fuels in the more developed economies, right? If you can do that in a just way, absolutely. Do you think by having it to fall back on always that it, that it slows down us plowing forward to, you know, to make it viable to live without them? I assume so. Assume that, you know, having a training wheels on a bike always slows you down your, you know, learning how to bike. Sure. So as the, as the largest funder of them, then aren't you part of the problem? I would not think so, to be very, very honest. We well, it's enabling them to stay. And if they stay, you just said that it makes us go slower to transition. And if we want to transition faster so that we avoid unnecessary suffering, then anything that slows the transition is part of the problem, no? 
I mean, I can point to three different areas where that is just, you know, a little extrapolation of the reality, right? What we finance, right? We finance companies that are fossil fuel companies, right? If you assume that all fossil fuel companies do is produce fossil fuel and they have no intention of changing behavior and we continue to finance them, right? Maybe, but that we know that is not true, right? We know that the fossil fuel companies are all looking at how to do energy transition, right? Many of them are public. Those who are not public are also in private, absolutely thinking about it. And from our seat, to me, it is perfectly reasonable for us to be financing companies on their energy transition. I think the world, again, to my earlier comment, the world needs to transition away, right? We can't say that with these companies because historically they have been doing something that the world now thinks has negative externalities. We have to stop funding these companies completely. These companies have a massive amount of you know, experience dealing with energy systems of the world, right? The engineering knowledge, the capital markets knowledge, these are companies that have been banked by the, the banks of the world, right? So there is a lot of benefits to these companies transitioning the energy system, right? As opposed to saying, let's cut the cord with all the legacy players in the energy complex and try to, you know, start all over again somewhere else with, you know, just a set of new companies, right? That just is, to me, is just not practical, right? So, you know, the numbers that, you know, point that we, we finance a lot of fossil fuel companies, sure, but, you know, a lot of that money is, again, I'm not contending all of it is, but some, at least some of it is being financed, is being financing the energy transition that these companies are embarked on, right? Which we absolutely want to do, right? And we want to encourage them to do more of it. Right? That's kind of the role I play is go talk to them and say, look, here's where we are, here's where we need to get, What's your plan, right? And how can we help, right? And that's a conversation. I would say that it's it's highly constructive with our clients. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's that's what you have to say and what you have to believe with your professional hat on. It's your it's your livelihood. From a personal standpoint, when you see the climate community demonize J.P. Morgan repeatedly, is that wholly unjust? Is there any merit to the concerns that they're surfacing? How does that make you feel? Look, I mean, in every debate, I'm not talking even about climate, in every debate, I do feel like you need people expressing kind of, you know, extreme viewpoints. Not because I think the extreme viewpoints are the right viewpoints in most cases, because that kind of, you know, pushes the debate in the right way, right? So I have limited sympathy, if I can be honest, with people who say the world is ending tomorrow, if you don't you know, make wholesale change. I don't think so. I have limited sympathy for that. And I have no sympathy for people who say climate science is a hoax, right? These are both, you know, again, one is limited sympathy, one is no sympathy. But neither of them, to me, is kind of the base case. So the base case is, it's an important issue, right? It requires all of us to pay attention. But if we do it in the right way, right, we will bend the curve, right? And so I have, I have absolutely no, there's no difference in personal, professional, right? This is, it's, I'm the same person, right? It's, it's no different. And, you know, I grew up in India, right? So I, I know what it means to have access to energy, right? Not having and then having. And those are real issues, right? How do we make sure that any actions we take, right? Doesn't end up having negative consequences in other parts of the economy or other parts of the world which are, you know, definitionally bad, right? How do we make sure that we don't end up creating more issues than we can solve, right? So those are issues we think about all day long. 
And you, you mentioned that if fossil fuels were taken away, that you haven't seen any scenario where we have what we need to power the world in a, in a cleaner way. What's missing? I think it's a host of things, right? I mean, there is clearly technological stuff, right? You know, there is, you know, technologies that seem to be clearly well-established that need to be scared, right? Hopefully that happens. That's great. That's purely a matter of capital, right? Which, again, that's an area where we can play a role. There is the whole, well, new technologies that seem to work well in controlled environment, but can they really work in the real world? Question, which I know obviously a lot of money and effort is being spent on. I think that that's going to be part of the problem. Third is, again, you know, where, in fact, regulation can play a role, right, is creating the right incentives or the disincentives, right? You know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to bring up carbon tax on this on this podcast, but creating that incentive, which can create cost parity between an emerging technology and an incumbent technology, right? I think that could be massive. So all of that, and by the way, you know, us as consumers kind of a being a bit more cognizant of what we do and changing behavior, that's all part of the mix. Okay, so technology and policy. So you're the largest bank in the world. Let's just say for sake of argument that one day your CEO had a crisis of conscience and said, you know what, we're done. We're not gonna fund fossil fuel projects anymore. And we're gonna take all the money that was going to that and we're gonna apply it to technology and using our market might because I know you're a service provider and you can say, well, we're beholden to the whims of our clients, but you're the largest bank in the world. You have a lot more market might than any other service provider I've ever seen. And so if you were to exert that to things like accelerating the policy discussions and, and applying them forwards, we would probably transition a lot faster like if transitioning is what we need and there's blockers holding us back, but the fossil fuel industry existing is slowing us down, why wouldn't a company like JP Morgan use its market might to push things forward and do what's right in a way that it isn't hedging like it feels like you are today? Yeah, no, I, I would honestly disagree with that assertion, right? So Paul Park, our financing of fossil fuel companies is $50 billion, give or take. By the way, again, as I said, it's not like all of that money is simply to continue producing more fossil fuel, right? You know, some part of it is to, in fact, transition their business, right? Keep that number in mind and compare that to our commitment to finance or facilitate $2.5 trillion over the next 10 years, right? Doing the other side, if you will, right? That's $250 billion a year, let's say, right? So clearly, I don't think that's a hedge, right? Clearly, we think the importance of leaning in on these newer technologies, newer companies, newer business models, right, which are more sustainable, lower carbon footprint is very, very important. If you really believe that, why don't you cut the cord? If the numbers are tiny looking backwards and so big looking forwards, then then wouldn't you want to get to those bigger numbers faster? Because you already said if the stuff in the rearview mirror went away, that we would get to the good stuff faster, right? And, and wouldn't that be in JP Morgan's self-interest if what you're saying is true? No, no, I like to believe everything I'm saying is true, but I'm not quite sure if the contention is that JP Morgan can cut financing fossil fuel or as an extension, the world should cut financing for fossil fuel. Again, if it is the latter, right, that let's flip a switch tomorrow, the world stops financing fossil fuels. I don't think we'll be able to have this call, right, electronically, right? So. I don't think the world is ready for fossil fuel companies to be completely shut from financing. 
right? I don't think so. Again, that's just a factual statement. I mean, look, I think they play an important role in our future, not fossil fuels directionally, right? But the, the big energy companies, right? And mm -hmm. they have the expertise, they have the capital, they have the resources. If we really don't have the time, you know, that all the climate scientists say that we want to move as quick as we can and, and quick as we can, it's not ripping the system down and rebuilding from zero. It's taking what we've got and putting it to good use. So look, I buy that, but I guess a question I have for you is, I mean, do you understand why there's so much distrust of their intentions based on their historical behavior? And no, I understand the point of view, right? I mean, I don't disagree that there is distrust of... Is it warranted? Of, you know, is the distrust warranted? I don't know who's distrust, right? I mean, you know, some people seem to have extreme distrust, right? By the way, there are, you know, people who have extreme distrust of banks, right? Or financial institutions. There are people who have extreme or science. distrust of... Or science. Or science. Or <laughs> pharmaceutical companies, or the healthcare, or insurance. I mean, you know, what can we do, Right. I don't know whether that distrust is kind of a driving factor, candidly, in how I would think about the world, right? To me, again, you know, we are where we are, right? We have a pretty good idea of what we need to do going forward, right? Kind of as a macro comment. And then I think we have a pretty good idea of what role a firm like ours can play going forward, right? And how do we kind of make sure that we play our role to the best of our abilities, right? Knowing, again, our role in the economy. To me, that's a more useful thing that we are spending time on rather than figuring out, you know, you know, opinion polls on who's saying what about whom, right? Yeah. I mean, here's my concern, right? And again, who am I? I mean, I'm three years in, wet behind the ears. I ran a fitness app company, you know, before this, that was like 50 people at its biggest, right? So what do I know? But from my seat, what I see is I see a lot of these big old school energy companies and even just big companies in general with these stupid net zero commitments, like they're better than not having them. But honestly, I think a lot of it is just to say the right words and pick a time frame that's so far out that it'll buy them lots of times to just hang on to business as usual as long as they can. And I worry that from a JP Morgan standpoint or any big bank for that matter, that's a service provider to these deep pocketed institutions, that your incentive is to keep collecting the fees as long as you can. And if the fees are going to come from the status quo, then the status quo is, is what you do. But hold out just something to be excited about the future, these little sexy words and, and like these commitments and look, we're doing this and that. But a lot of it is just mostly PR where, where the rubber meets the road, you know, the status quo is what's carrying the day still like that is that's how I feel, how true that is. I don't know. You're close to it. Maybe just speak to all the listeners and reassure people, re reassure people that you're serious because I want to believe you. I'm, I'm having a hard time. No, no. Look, I would say there's a lot of merit to kind of, you know, some of the criticism you, you have, right? I personally and we as a firm also kind of have the same skepticism about just a 2015 at zero target with absolutely no details on how you're going to go from here to there, right? 100% same page, right? Our own philosophy was, you know, we actually didn't even have a 2050, you know, net zero target, right? We, in fact, came out and said, we want to Paris align our financing book and we want to have a 2030 target, right? We felt very strongly that having an intermediate target, right, was, and then by the way, a commitment to actually show progress towards the target on an annual basis. To us, that felt like more useful and meaningful, right? And credible than saying, oh, I'll be net zero. Don't ask me how, right? That's, you know, the guy who's kind of doing my job three generations down, his problem or her problem, right? So that's something we feel very strongly about ourselves. Second thing I'll say is, so now that we have this target, right, when we go engage with our clients, as I said, like, you know, I believe that carbon is the new credit, 
right? So just like we are evaluating our clients on a credit basis, we're evaluating them now on a carbon basis, right? And the way we kind of think about the carbon profile of a company includes things like, well, where are you today? What's been your trajectory to get to where you are today, right? Have you made historical statements, right? And have you actually, you know, done what you said you will do historically looking back? Now let's look forward, right? What have you said about the future? Do you actually have intermediate targets? And are those intermediate targets consistent with where we think the world needs to be, right? And by the way, again, not a 2050 net zero, but I have no clue, but show us where you're going to be in 2030, right? Do you have numerical targets, not just big ambition? So these are all factored in when we make decisions on a transaction by transaction basis for every client who's under scope for our Paris commitment, right? So to us, this is how we think we can bring about change, being very practical, being very fact-based, right? Being very diligent, being very empirical. And again, giving very limited, you know, credibility to anyone who just simply makes a very long dated big picture commitment, but hasn't really done any of the work to show how they're going to get there. Again, that's how we are dealing with it. I will plead the case that other banks and other financial service providers are also thinking about it the same way. Obviously, I don't know all the inner workings of other banks, but philosophically, I know that's how people are thinking about it, right? Because keep in mind, look, we are, we are a highly regulated entity. I would be very nervous about making claims about our own commitments without knowing that I have a path to actually hit those commitments. I would not make those claims if I didn't have a lot of confidence on how am I going to go from here to there. So to us, all of this necessary ingredients for us to even make a commitment. I mean, this is making me realize there's one important topic we haven't touched on yet, which is we talked about how you think that that if we were going to hit a wall overnight, you know, people that say that, that that's overblown. And you also talked about how people that say that climate science is a hoax, that's overblown. And so where are we in terms of climate risk and how much that is priced into the current financial markets? I think it's beginning to be priced in, right? And there are, there are pockets how, of the How much world. risk is there, though? Because we were debating about the how much urgency should we be operating with. So how much risk is there even, even today? Is, is there a lot of risk before we talk about whether it's priced in or not? And then it'd be good to talk about in the context of how much of that is actually priced into the markets. I don't know how to quantify how much risk there is. There are pockets where there is extreme risk, right? And there are pockets where maybe the risk is maybe further out in time or it's not quite as high, right? So it's it's pretty dispersed. Again, I'm as a banker, to me, the best window into that question is, again, when I look at financial data, right? And you can see if you look at how, you know, maybe fossil fuel companies are trading versus renewable companies are trading in the marketplace, right? You can extract information from that and imply the reason why if I, you know, both are producing a megajoule of energy, and let's assume a way that there might be other differences, management quality, this, that, or the other. You can say, okay, maybe then there is an indication here of how the world perceives climate risk should be valued or how carbon should be valued. And you can start extracting information like that, right? Which is what we do, and we look at it. And so if you look at the energy complex, I think there is evidence that the market is beginning to think of it as a risk and pricing it at a, you know, at some non-zero beginning to, look real number, right? 
But if you go away from that into other other kind of sectors of the economy, it's not clear at all that the market started thinking about it. Right? And so, I, but again, in my perspective, I, I think the market will, right? The market will over time start thinking about how do I price the risk of climate, right? You know, as a bank, you know, should I, again, just talking about a, you know, a mortgage in New Jersey versus a mortgage in Florida, should I think about it the same way, all else equal? Or should I think about the impact of, you know, future climate scenarios on how I price those? I think we are thinking about those things, right? I think these things will be put in place before too long. Do you believe that climate change is a crisis or emergency? And if not, how would you describe the nature of, and the urgency of the problem? I think it's an urgent problem. I think that's probably what it is, right? Not quite sure. English is at best my third language. I don't know how to kind of parse through the difference between a crisis and an emergency. It's clearly urgent. There is no doubt about it. It's not something we can put in the back drawer and say, you know what, I'll come back to it later. It's something we all need to focus on right away. There is no doubt about that. And when you think about the path forwards, do you think that it is this path of incremental improvements throughout all aspects of our economy? Is that the right pace and strategy for transition? Or do we need to rip the Band-Aid and do something more disruptive to avert catastrophic consequences? If you can rip the Band-Aid while avoiding catastrophic consequences right now, right, to parts of the world where maybe not visible to us, but, you know, have their lives and need the support of the energy infrastructure, then yeah, do it now, right? My belief is progress will seem incremental, but there will be step changes, right? There will be, like technological innovation happens in step changes, I think, right? So somebody figures out how to make nuclear fusion kind of really, you know, viable from a cost perspective, safety perspective, et cetera, et cetera, that'll be a step change, right? So these things, I don't know what those will be, right? Somebody figures out how to do direct air capture in a commercially viable, cost-effective way, that could be a step change. So these step changes will happen over time, right? But in between the step changes, I don't think we can sit back and say, we don't need to do anything. Let's wait for the step changes. I think we need to do incremental progress. And you had mentioned earlier in the discussion that our quality of life has continued to improve. Do you think we'll see the same thing 10 years out and 20 years out in those charts? I mean, it has to, right? From a global perspective, I would be, it'd be disappointing if it's not, right? Uh-huh. Do you think we're on a path for that to happen at our current, current pace of evolution? I think so. I think so. I mean, you look at just the disparity in standards of living across the globe. I mean, even if folks in the developed part don't, you know, if you don't have material improvements from this point on, I think there are lots of people around the globe who have almost no access to energy and lots of basic things. I mean, their standard of living has to be improved. I think that is, talk about an emergency. I mean, that is an emergency. We have to focus on it and that has to happen. Do you think we're moving fast enough to decarbonize? I think we can do more. I think we need to go faster, right? As a, again, as a global macroeconomic matter, we need to do more, right? If you look at, I'm sure you look at these charts regularly, right? You know, look at where we were in 15 and where we thought we needed to go and you look at, we take a mark to market today, clearly we haven't done enough, right? So I think evidence is we haven't moved fast enough in the recent years, even since we knew this was an important issue. So yeah, we need to go faster, no doubt about that. 
And if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that would help accelerate that progress, what would you change and how would you change it? Look, again, you know, policy stuff, creating the right incentives, I think is a big part of it. I think that can always be very, very important tool, right? So carbon tax would be top of list, clearly. More consensus among capital providers, right, on how to value some of these externalities will be, I don't know whether it's, again, regulation that drives that or, you know, development of, you know, the markets, right? Is there going to be a more robust market price on carbon, et cetera? I don't know what the catalyst is, but again, creating better mechanisms for capital to flow to the right areas, right? So market infrastructure improvements would be fantastic. And that obviously we have a role to play. It's not something that we have no control on. And I think we we are trying to play a role on that. So those are the things that come to mind. Anything that the community can do to be helpful to your efforts? I mean, who who do you want to hear from, if anybody, and how can we be helpful to you? Yeah, look, I'd love to hear from people, right? So I can... I like to think that we are pretty humble about what we know and what we don't, right? And there are lots of aspects of this which are kind of outside our comfort zone, right? We are a bank, right? So I love that the best conversations I have are with either clients or prospective clients who have a different, very different point of view, much like you know the way you were probing me and saying, look, from the outside in, it doesn't look like you're doing enough. And here's the five reasons why I think so. And Tell me why maybe I'm missing something, or if not, then what are you going to do about it, right? So I always welcome those conversations. You know, to me, having strong opinions is very, very, you know, if you have a strong opinion and that's a different opinion than ours, that's great. We will learn from you. As long as you're also open-minded to kind of hear from us what is it that we are in fact doing and how we think about the issue and how we think about the world, right? I think we are being rational, again, being humble at the same time that we may not know everything that we should know and constantly learning, right? So again, love to hear from folks who have an opinion, who have ideas for what a financial services company can be doing to to really help the world. So open to all calls. Rama, anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I'm glad you didn't ask about kind of, you know, the political landscape and the impact of that. That's a whole different animal. So I'm glad you didn't go there. But I really appreciate the opportunity, right? I mean, I know that a lot of what we do, again, definitionally tends to be not in the public domain, right? We are in the business of servicing our clients behind closed doors. And an opportunity like this to come talk a little bit about our story, our thought process is definitely something I I welcome. And thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for coming on and for tolerating my questions. You've given me a lot to think about. And I also, you know, I really hope your team lets this ship because I think it's going to spur a lot of constructive dialogue and I think it's going to help learning and understanding all around. So I know we talked about some thorny topics, but but I, I think from a learning standpoint, it will foster a lot of great discussion, which is what MCJ is all about. So thank you again for the opportunity. No, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, 
please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.